And thank you both again so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me today. But before we jump into why we get to talk, uh, which is Blood of Zeus, you know, 2020 is currently wrapping up. And I think honestly, for most people, uh, probably pretty happy to put this year behind us. But since this is the first time I'm getting to talk to you this year, how has 2020 been for the both of you? You know, uh, Dave, it's been obviously a very tough year for everyone. You know, we consider ourselves lucky, you know, um, because, you know, being a writer, you know, we have an office, but we, we've worked in solitary situations before. So, you know, obviously our heart kind of goes out to all the people that, you know, have lost loved ones, people that have lost jobs. You know, we hate to see the country kind of fractured and, and suffering, um, you know, and that is, is tough. But truthfully, we consider ourselves lucky. You know, everyone is healthy. We have a job. Uh, we have no complaints. You know, we, we're not sitting in L.A. traffic. We're, we haven't missed dinner at home with our families in a while. Um, so, you know, while that sucks, we're making the best of it. And, and we always just say, like, you know, thankfully, like, you know, we had family that during World War II in Greece, you know, during the, you know, German occupation, one in every 10 Greek, you know, died of starvation. And it's like, we have a full fridge. We have Netflix. It's okay. Like, if this is our hard time, and that was five years, you know, if this is our hard time, like, we, we got to suck it up and just deal with it. As writers, too, uh, Dave, you know, part of the job is how you frame things because there's rejection in this industry. And so we always try to frame things as, as positively as we can. I, I second everything that Charlie said. And then, you know, what we try to do as, as, as much as we can, sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail. We just try to hone in on the positive. And, and one of the positives of, um, 2020 is that we were busy. You know, we were working on a, a pilot for MGM and we had a couple other jobs that we were working on. So we were, we were blessed in that sense. We were blessed that we have, um, our families. And, and as Charlie mentioned, thank God, you know, everyone is healthy and well. So we, we just try to focus on the positive as, as much as we can, but it does sadden us to see the country so polarized and, and see the country kind of going through what they're going through. But, uh, it also, afforded us the opportunity and time to spend more time with our family too. Uh, we're in the office, we work late hours, um, and, you know, we were able to be home with our families for, for dinner, you know, which is kind of rare. And so again, everything is how you perceive it. We try to take this and try to make it and focus on the positive as, as much as we can. I will say uh, across the board, anytime I get to talk to folks, especially involved in animation like yourselves, Animation has kind of been a silver lining for a lot of people this year. It's it's provided an opportunity to, you know, continue writing, to continue production, because a lot of that stuff can be done remotely, even if it's not really ideal. Charlie and I were, were talking a little bit offline about sort of the, uh, the how that impacted your production process. So did, did any of the kind of uh, shakeups, did it really impact uh, production of Blood of Zeus all that much? Or were you able to just kind of, uh, you know, weather the storm, so to speak, and just carry forward? How did that work out for you in 2020? There was, a, there was a definitely an initial slowdown when the initial kind of shelter and order, um, uh, shelter at home order came in here in California. Um, and so I think it, it slowed down our speed, the rate at which we work, mm. I'd say maybe like 10%, because now, you know, it's just not like everyone's in the office. You just pop in, oh, you know, we have an editorial question, we have a design question. Oh, let's go talk to our director. We're not all in the same space. Um, but we were able to continue to work. And I think once we kind of put systems in place where we could communicate better and share files better, uh, we were able to continue forward. So that's the great thing about animation. We were able to continue to work. It did slow us down. I think the great kind of irony in all of this is that um, our overseas, all the boards were done here in L.A. and, and in Austin, Texas. But the overseas animation was in South Korea. And, and if you guys remember, yeah. initially, one of the first outbreaks was there. And, and I was asking Mike, our producer, Mike, is this going to be a problem? We know Don Wu, you know, they're working on episodes. They go, well, let's see. Don't worry. They, they said they're okay. It's not a problem in Seoul where they are. And the irony is that I was worried about them, but then we got <laughs> shut down before. They, they never they never got shut down. Exactly. We were the ones that got sent home. Um, so you just, you don't know, but thankfully you can do animation, you know, even in, under these circumstances. 
it retarded the process, but thank God it didn't shut it down. So we feel very blessed, you know, whereas in the live action space, yeah. it literally brought production to a halt. Yeah. And uh, we, we feel for those people and the people involved with this production. So again, we feel very blessed that it slowed us down, but we kept, you know, um, kept moving ahead, kept forging ahead. So we were very lucky uh, to be working in this space during this time. Yeah, absolutely. And now kind of going back, uh, back in time to maybe some happier times (laughs) a little bit, maybe take me back to the the early days of Blood of Zeus. I know once upon a time when it was announced, it was under the title chain, uh, title of Gods and Heroes. But walk me back to when the the project first started up. And then in addition to the title change, like what what kind of changed along the way from your initial ideas to the, the final product we can see on Netflix now? You know, Dave, we were just very lucky. This is Charlie. This was just an idea we always kind of had in our back pocket. Uh, it was born out of this, you know, I guess you would call it a failed pitch because it was a, a pitch we didn't sell. But we always um, believed and we told our agent we thought it'd be cool to kind of do a Greek mythology anthology show, kind of like in the vein of American Horror Story, okay. where you take one season and you take 10 episodes to really delve into these stories. And it all began with this story we wanted to tell about Icarus and Didalus. Uh, his father, who was this kind of amazing character, kind of Tony Stark, you know, weapons inventor that was accused of murder and had to go on the run. Um, and through kind of fleshing out that idea and figuring out what the other seasons of that show would be, we kind of stumbled upon these two myths where we said, like, if you took half of that story and half of this story, that'd really be pretty cool. Um, and so it just so happened, and we just kept talking about that idea. Uh, we wrote some of it out almost as like a, a short story and then just we were lucky enough that we had a general meeting um, at Netflix one day with John Dredarian who's in charge of their you know anime division uh, he's the guy that actually for anyone out there who, who loves Castlevania they have John to thank because um, uh, he was the one behind that show as well right and he said, listen, do you have anything in the mythological space or public domain space that you think might work as an anime show? And we said, well, actually, there's this one idea we had, you know, about a bastard son of Zeus and, and, and how it all unfolds. And we pitched him the idea, and he, he really responded to it. And, and uh, he asked us to kind of write it up. And, and after we wrote it up, we uh, he said, and he said, listen, I really like this. And he said, if you write the pilot, the first episode, which is like 20 to 22 pages, and a 10-page Bible kind of explaining the arc of the first season, mm-hmm. if you do that and I like it, I promise not only to buy it, but I'll make it. And uh, and thankfully, it was just what's great about Netflix is that they do give you read a great executive, a creative executive, Brandon Mattingly, who you know would read every script and give us notes, but they really just kind of let us tell, tell the story we wanted to tell. Um, and you know, I don't know if we're going to get into spoilers or not, but the fundamental, um, you know, bones of the story kind of remained what they were at the outset. They remained all the way through, with the exception of John's one big note is that this has to be epic and it has to end with a bigger battle. Mm. And so that's something we literally had epic, just like on a postcard <laughs> over our desk. Yeah. Epic. Every time we spoke with John, he, he just kept reiterating that. Um, so thankfully, you know, in that sense, um, this was an idea that was just inherently strong and kind of wrote itself. And I would add to that, too, um, we, we feel indebted to John Dedarian, um, because he had the guts to greenlight the show. He also had the foresight that um, there would be an appeal for this show, that piece, that audiences would, would like it and accept it. You know, the reception has been very good, and, and you know, now everyone's jumping on the bandwagon. They're like, oh, what a great idea. Why didn't anyone think of, <laughs> you know, um, making an anime in, in the space of Greek mythology? And, and now it all seems so obvious. But at that time, it hadn't been done. And at that time, it was uh, a risk because most often... You know, even as Charlie had mentioned, a lot of the animes that were made were were animes that um, were basically made from big IPs, video game IPs. Now, Greek mythology does have an awareness, but it was still untested. And so the fact that John said, you know what, I believe in this, I I think that there's an audience for this, and and gambled, took a gamble on our show, uh, means a lot to us. And, and And I also think... Again, with regards to him, it really shows that he had some some guts and some and some foresight, and we're we're again very grateful that he that he rolled the dice on the show. Even for people that you know love Castlevania, we love that show. That wasn't a slam dunk when you kind of look at it from afar. If you go back to when he greenlit it, because 
as you know, like a lot of video game adaptations to movies and TV shows, you know, they haven't been that successful. Right. But John, we, we give him credit. Like if he believes in something, he'll, he'll roll the dice. You guys have definitely hit the epic note uh, out of the park, especially with that, that last, I mean, not just from like a Greek epics, but I mean like that, that, in, that entire last battle was just like, like jaw on the floor, kind of just like, what is going to happen next kind of thing, uh, just for that whole final episode, which we'll get into spoilers in, in a little bit here. But, but talking about kind of mythology, Blood of Zeus, you kind of have a, a mixed bag of classic tales that you know of, sort of one, ones that you mentioned earlier. But you guys have definitely added your own kind of spin to the story, your own new characters created, I think, just for this show. So can you talk about deciding what to keep and what to add in to kind of freshen things up? What was your, your story-breaking process like? You know, as writers, we always um, ask ourselves questions, and, and we say, well, what if this happened, or what if that happened? And so one of the, the questions um, we had asked ourselves was, or basically to backtrack it, I would say this, I would say that we knew that these mythological tales were, they were oral tradition. It was an oral tradition. And if it was an oral tradition, then some of these weren't transcribed. And if some of these maybe weren't transcribed, what if we postulate that our story is one of these lost tales? And that gave us a creative license to take the story where we wanted to take it. And I think some of the fun of the show is if you are familiar with Greek mythology, you can look and look at the show and say, oh, they took that Greek myth, and then they spun it this way, or they did it. This is one that is true to the, the Greek mythological tales, but this is something that they added. And with regards to what we kept and what we added, it, it was a kind of back and forth where we were just kind of talking about, okay, here's our main character, here's our protagonist, and what's the most compelling story to tell? In addition to that, John told us you have eight episodes to tell your story. So we almost had to reverse engineer. We had to say, okay, it's going to it's going to basically, there's going to be a climactic moment here. And then this is kind of the real estate that we have to work with. And we almost kind of went backwards and kind of, um, that gave us a, a rough kind of spine to work from. And to be honest, Dave, some of it is just out of pure necessity because, you know, we've pitched different iterations of, of Greek mythology and different stories. And when you, when you kind of, you know, stick too close to the original stories, even when the executive will say that they, they have an affinity for Greek mythology, that they love Greek mythology, you can just see that their, their physicality change and they kind of feel like, Oh, kind of, you know, this has been there, done that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we almost had to say like, well, listen, if this is a lost tale, then we can use the tropes and the archetypes and, and some of the characterizations that people know and love about Greek mythology, but it can still feel fresh and still feel like, oh, this is something that, this isn't the tenth iteration of Hercules that we've seen. Um, and so, so some of it was out of just sheer necessity to kind of, you know, get our foot in the door to get past the gatekeepers. And then also, too, truthfully, we love Greek mythology. And there's, so there's, there's parts of that we do want to honor and stay true to. So it, it then becomes this kind of, um, kind of amalgamation of the two, uh, if that makes sense. What I would also add, and it also became, you know, it came down to, okay, dramatic construction and journey for our character. Right. And then those became the focus. But it built into that, you know, dramatic construction. What is, what is actually building, or, or what, you know, or how are we tracking our characters, their emotional journeys? And then that forced us to kind of go down a certain path. And that helped us you know, say, okay, this part of the original myth we don't need because that's not building um, the dramatic construct in this particular story. That's not furthering the character's journey, whichever character that may be, whichever character we were exploring at that time. So that helped bring things into focus as well. Yeah, and I love how you guys, uh, you played with the conventions a little bit too, and there was some occasional uh, misdirection. We're going to get into some spoilers now too for, for our listeners out there, so make sure you guys have, have watched all eight episodes and watch them again a second time. Uh, but say, for example, you know, a minotaur shows up, and classically you think like, okay, there's going to be a maze, there's maybe going to be a chase, there's maybe going to be a battle. But no, that, that, that threat is taken out almost immediately, and the, the characters just kind of like push forward. And do their own thing. I love little things like that where you have nods to classic mythology, but then you have your own specific twist on it that you're like, okay, well, I don't know 
where we're going next, but I'm excited to get there. No, it's just so funny you say that because uh, this classics professor reached out to us on Twitter, mm. and you know he's like, I, I appreciated all the little nods, and he, and he you know ran through like a gambit of ones that he spotted. <laughs> but he goes, but you know what was nice? He goes, I got to watch something in the world of Greek mythology, and I didn't know where the story was going. Exactly. <laughs> and we just thought that was just like a really nice kind of thing because this is someone who teaches this. Um, and I guess partly it's like you know if you're doing the Odyssey, you know where the story right. ends, you know unless you really kind of you know divert from it so uh that that was just kind of a i I think uh that landed even better than we had hoped definitely and i like that you have the lost tales too so you kind of have that built-in freedom to play around and and stay in that world and stay with those characters but do your own thing and specifically one of those those characters which you kind of have to build uh a a greek legend that's going to stand the test of time you kind of have to build that around a, a heroic protagonist so can you talk about heron and and specifically i'm wondering how you chose that that specific name and maybe you can allude to some of the significance of that name on his journey yeah heron um is in greek translates the hero mm. and and as, as charlie always mentions too uh the hero's journey was something that we knew we were going to explore um with the show i, I think it's important you know when it comes to writing a character just to to draw from experiences, uh, this story was a very personal story for us. We grew up um, immigrants, Greek immigrants. We, we saw our parents at times uh, being ostracized, minimized to a certain extent, even though um, we at times, you know, uh, we, we would go to school at times and we would bring the spana coffee in and then people would look at us and they would smell and they felt we were a little weird. And so we are, ourselves felt ostracized at times. Um, and Heron is the, the, the quintessential outsider. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to explore what that feels like, what, what that, that is, you know, um, for a character to experience. And he's ostracized and he's a bastard and he's angry and, and I would say that he also uh, is one of the characters where we explored this theme of anger and how he deals with his anger and then how anger can destroy um, a person or if they let it go, they can become the best version of themselves. And in becoming the best version of themselves, they can overcome the adversity they're pitted against. And we explored that in three characters, Heron being one, Seraphim being in the one where he can't let go of his anger, and it, it, that becomes his his downfall, his anger is his downfall. And then with Hera, her anger pushes her to go too far, mm-hmm. where she realizes, like, oh my God, what have I done? And it changes her in a way, God willing, if we have a season two, we'll be able to explore that. So it, it starts from a very personal place. We, we, we drew upon our personal experiences, and then obviously, you know, we weren't ostracized or... Um, as Heron was, but that was like the jumping off point. And, and I think that it makes him relatable because I think everyone in their life at one time feels like they're an outsider. Even if they're in a certain group, they, they feel like maybe they don't quite fit in or they're made to feel weird or they're even minimalized it, in a way. So the, the, the character evolved from personal experiences and wanting to explore the hero's journey. Um, and what would you ask? We also feel, Dave, no, uh, I was just going to say that, you know, we, you know, we, we love, I know the, the hero with a thousand faces, you know, we live in a very cynical time that's maybe kind of frowned upon, you know, these days, but, you know, it, it's tried and true and it works for a reason. And, uh, and part of it is, you know, obviously Lucas has been, you know, very clear about how he, that inspired him in Star Wars and, mm-hmm. and all he did was take the hero's journey and put it in the sci-fi world. Mm-hmm. And then we grew up watching that, loving that. And we think it's time to kind of pull it back into the mythological sword and sandal, you know, world. Yeah. And, and since we we did feel we wanted like, all right, you know, Greek mythology, it's always, you know, there's always elements of tragedy or epic nature stories. What better setting for to do the hero's journey again to put our own kind of spin on it? And if we are doing the hero's journey, what better name than Heron, which literally translates in Greek to hero. And then it also kind of, fits the mold like when Hercules was born, um, you know, he, he was named after Hera to try and appease her to, right. to calm her down <laughs> for another one of, you know, Zeus's infidelities. <laughs> and while that's not the case in our story, we felt like, oh, and it kind of fits that mold of, you know, Heron, Hercules, like the bastard, you know, children of Zeus. Um, and so it just seemed to be one of those things where like, you know what, this just feels right, you know, for what all the things we're trying to do and, and the dynamics we're exploring. It felt like a good, a good choice. 
Dave, if, if I may add, I just want to just say something. Just as, as storytellers, you know, we feel it's important also to, you know, leave a good message with an audience without being preachy, God willing. Hopefully we've earned it. And and we, we spoke to a, a critic that had seen the show, and, and this made us feel really good. She basically said, listen, I'm, I'm Mexican I'm in Texas. I feel minimal, minimized. I feel... You know, and I'm angry. I'm so angry. And what I loved about your show was that I saw Heron dealing with that anger, and it reminded me that I have to let that anger go. I have to take that anger and I have to use it in a positive way to help be the best version of myself. And that's what I came away with. And that when she said that to us, it made us feel so good. Because if you can, you know, bring a story into a world and and you can entertain people and, and there's, uh, there's a lot of graphic violence in there and there's a lot of gruesome um, components to the show. But there's also this, I, I would hope that people come away with this inspirational component. And, and if you can say something good, even if it's a, a subtle uh, message that just makes us feel good as storytellers. Oh, I love that. And I'll, I'll take it a step further with a little anecdote of my own. Uh, when I, I heard, you know, Heron was the, the name of the, the character. So I was like, okay, I wanted to look that up and just, I like to know because I'm a writer myself. So I, I tend to cram as much kind of meaning into every word that you can. Right. So I was looking up Heron and kind of like what it was related to. And obviously I came across the bird and in a lot of sort of beliefs or spirituality, the Heron kind of stands for tranquility. And then I'm watching this character. I'm like, well, maybe it's not that because he's not exactly tranquil <laughs> for most of the story. But then it, it actually had a lot of meaning uh, at the end where it was like tranquility, kind of that inner peace is super important to this character's journey at the end. It, even if it's sort of momentary, that's the sort of transformative moment. So I was like, well, even if that's not the intended meeting, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. But, you know, Dave, though, it, it touches on something Ross and I talk about a lot. Like, we live in the age of the anti-hero, mm. and kind of because it is, that is kind of the going trend, then what you have to do is that if your anti-hero, if your main character and your protagonist is an anti-hero, then the villain has to be an even worse guy. You know what I mean? And so, like, you know, in, in Breaking Bad, Walter White, you know, we all love Walter White. So they bring in Gus Spring because he's like, he's not just a drug dealer. He's like in the cartel and he's really bad, you know, or like we always talk about we, everything that always goes back to the, to the Sopranos. Yeah. Like, you know, all right, Tony Sopranos a gangster. Then we're going to bring in Richie Creel because he's a really bad gangster. Um, and so part of it is, is that like, you know, if you're going to not choose to do uh, an anti-hero story and we're going to do the hero's journey, then we better surround it because we live in this kind of, you know, cynical nihilistic time we have to then have like lots of like chaos around it and hope that we can get away with it because there's still value in trying to find peace in trying to do the right thing now that might be viewed by some people as too kind of pat now but this idea of finding peace finding tranquility that's something I love that tranquility is a story we need to find and we still need to tell these stories and there's a reason that you know Greek mythology, they're not parables like, you know, in the Judeo-Christian ethics, but they are meant to be lessons and that people took them as lessons. So part of it is like, you know, that was part of the conversation that we want to try and have this positive message. And this is, this is what we should strive for. Uh, and the God said we should strive for excellence and peace and tranquility. Um, but then, you know, can you still tell that story in 2020? And to be honest, we weren't sure, but we think we got away with it. I got to say, then the flip side of that coin, which is uh, talking about an anti-hero, talking about not being able to let go of anger. Can you talk a bit about Seraphim? You know, obviously that name has some uh, religious significance. So how did you come up with that character who I think is a really interesting and tragic and, and kind of tortured character to follow through this journey? It was just as enjoyable for me to watch Seraphim's journey as it was uh, for Heron and, and uh, the rest of our heroes. So can you talk about Seraphim a little bit? He was the most just fun character. <laughs> I bet. Well, uh, he was the most fun character to write. Mm -hmm. He he was you know uh, we, we had a, a blast writing writing him and um, and again it was just exploring anger and, and what that can do and how that but the, the, the beauty of of Serpin, you, you just Charlie always says this and I totally agree with him we we don't have evil characters we have antagonists mm -hmm. and and what we try to do uh, is the, what Perkin does we we spend time and we really figure out what does each character want and then how they go about getting what they want to find their character. And so I feel like people understand what, what Seraphim wants and they can relate to his journey. And uh, I'll let Charlie take it from here, but, but he was just a, a, a 
blast to write. And, and part of it is that, you know, there is a translation of seraphim in ancient Greek that translates to the, to the burnt one or the scarred one. Yeah. And so for us, that was always the, the kind of genesis of this character. Like we always say sometimes, you know, sometimes in life, you know, the gods smile down on you and, and sometimes they conspire against you. Mm. And for seraphim, like everything just conspired against this guy. Everything broke bad and everything went against him. And we just thought that would just be a really cool, um, kind of character to be kind of a mirror to, to Heron, who, not that things went well for Heron, but because of obviously their relationship and dynamic, it would just be cool to see these two kind of opposites come together. Um, and, and, and that's, that was really at the heart of, of his character for us. And, and if, if I would like, I want to also add that I feel sometimes in life, people are a product of circumstance, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you look at sometimes, um, say a criminal and you say, Oh, that's a bad person. And when you look at that person's history and you see how they got to that point in their life, um, sometimes, and, I'm, and it doesn't in any way, you know, we need all need to be held accountable for our actions. We believe in that, but there are times when I, I feel that the circumstances that, that people live in, <laughs> their almost their 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 life and, and, and their fate and their destiny in a way. Um and I, there's something about that that's that's inherently tragic. And uh you know, we wanted to explore that, how what happened to Seraphim brought about that monster. And um it, it was just something that was just very interesting to us and just from the reception that we've been getting from audiences, I, I would say he's probably one of the most favorite characters, and, and that, that's been gratifying to see. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's definitely one of my favorite characters to kind of watch, and the way that the past and the tragic events of his past, and, and again, the gods <laughs> from all angles conspiring against him uh, were revealed. It was, it was, you know, it was, it was tragic and just kind of like, ah, uh, just really felt, felt for the guy, but then he also had multiple chances to, uh, to you know, come clean at the end. Um, and decided not to for, you know, and then his fate is sort of, I don't know if it's sealed. I know, don't know if it's, uh, left to be determined. I guess we'll have to find out. Another character I was super interested in finding more about was, uh, Alexia. So I wasn't sure, like, are we going to get another demigod backstory? Are we going to get an exploration of the sort of, uh, the Amazon culture? Did you guys ever consider bringing, bringing more of that into the mix? Um, we, we had her backstory oh, cool. in the show and it got cut sure, the yeah. last minute. We ran out of real estate. It killed us. It killed us right <laughs> up until the very end. And, and one of the, the biggest challenge, and, uh, you know, I, I think Charlie may agree with this is that these scripts are 22 pages, 20 yeah. pages. You only have so much real estate. And so you have Seraphim, you have Heron, you have Zeus, you have, um, Hera. And, and we just ran out of real estate. That one kills us. If God willing, we're afforded at the second season. We're, we're definitely going to bring that backstory in and we're going to explore further. But there, there was, you know, there was some of that in season one that just got cut out at the end. And I wish it, it that didn't happen. And I wish we could have given her her due and given her that moment. And not just for her, for some of even the other you know, secondary God characters. Mm-hmm. It's just that we ran out of real estate. You know that as a writer. You know, um, when you have uh, an ensemble, um, it's hard to, to service everyone. And, and, and the easiest thing to do is just to lose a couple of characters because <laughs> then you can hone in on, on the ones that are left. But um, we totally hear you on that. And uh, we do have a backstory. And, and we just hope, we just hope and pray that we're, we're afforded a second season so we can explore that further. And, you know, Dave, to be honest, the 100% complete truth, that stuff was written, and some of it we even boarded. Uh, what happened was, initially when we were writing the scripts, you know, and, and I think, to, to their credit, I think this was in benefit of the show, we asked Netflix, hey, is it okay if we write, you know, 26 or, you know, 27-page episode? They're like, yeah, just, just let your imagination run free. <laughs> go, go, just write whatever you want. But then as soon as we hired Shonk, who was our amazing director, mm-hmm. um, uh, Negotian, when he came on board, he's like, guys, listen, we're budgeted for 20, 21 and a half minutes mm-hmm. of animation. But you have to get these scripts down to like 20, 21 page 
And and for Ross and I, those next six weeks were just brutal because oh, we sure. cut like thirty pages yeah. um, from the you eight episodes that we had. <laughs> and you know how that is. Like you just do the best. And there was some stuff we were still like fighting and trying to get in, um, but we, it we just couldn't. It kills us because like there's three or four scenes that we dropped for her that we just would have loved to have kept. But hopefully, you know, we we'll get a second season, and, and hopefully, we'll we'll be able to. To show you know you know who she is and why she is and why she has two swords and um and yeah and so it's it's just one of those things you for the first time like I remember um I don't know if it was Lucas or Spielberg said that like you, you don't finish a movie you abandon it for the first <laughs> time I understood what yeah. that meant because uh you know but it's listen we're just you know grateful we get to play in this inbox at all and we hope if we get a second season then we'll definitely jump into that more. Well, and, so. Indeed, you know, Charlie. No, sorry. No, you're fine. Go ahead. He, he mentioned Sean Negotian, our, our director, mm -hmm. and, and you had mentioned, um, you know, the epic component was something that really um, stood out. And, you know, we just have him to thank for it because the mandate when we had that conversation with him from the very beginning was try to make this as cinematic mm -hmm. as you can. And he embraced that fully. And I think that's kind of one way our show maybe is a little bit different from, say, other animes. We really treated this um, as a movie. We wanted to make it as cinematic as possible. So the reaction shots are there, like the Spielberg reaction shots, and that takes more time and more money to get because you need, you need time is money in every facet of production, whether it's animation or live action. And Sean really did a great job making this a cinematic experience, and he did that from the directorial side of things. We also did it with the music, and he did it with the editing. So um, it, it was something that we, we tried to do uh, from the very, very beginning, and, and I feel like we, we succeeded in, in doing that, and that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of um, with regards to how the show turned out. Yeah, absolutely. And and you guys both should be. And before I jump into kind of the visuals and praise those uh, for our last few questions here, uh, I wanted to pick up the thread that you mentioned of, of some things you had to kind of leave on the cutting room floor. And I'm suddenly reminded of uh, the fates and the, uh, the, the weavers uh, in that particular scene. Were there any other sort of deities or mythological tales? What were some of the what were the toughest cuts for you guys to have to make in those those edits? What was something you really wanted to see, but just didn't quite make it? <laughs> We had another scene. Question, we had a we had like a three kind of scene arc with Dionysus, who is like a really you know yep. cool character. Yep. We had a, a cool thing with Artemis that you know, but it's just you know pages and shots are money, and so you just have to make choices at, at some point. Um, you know, we had asked for ten episodes, and the one thing I will say, like mm. I don't want in any way to not sound grateful because, like you know, this wasn't uh, you know an existing IP. Like, you know, Netflix gave us a very generous and healthy budget. Like, you know, when you talk to other people in animation, like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, but just, we were maybe over ambitious, I think, of <laughs> Ross and I in the scope of the story we wanted to tell. And then what happens is that you, like, you write it and you kind of feel it and some of the stuff even, you know, Powerhouse, you know, boarded and you're like, oh, no, we, we can't. There, there was a sequence with Alexia in the, in the second episode. And, like, I was just going to say. <laughs> We we called Netflix and I said I will put my own money you know, to get this scene in there, please. But just in terms of like you know, let's get that animated with our post schedule, it just wouldn't have worked. But I was, I was we were begging, we we're like, please let you know, we want to keep this for Alexia. This, this. and but you know, in the end, you just have to make choices. And you know, uh, they were incredibly supportive. And then when COVID hit and we needed a little extra, they were able to help. Like. So I, I don't want in any way to seem like, you know, not grateful. Um, but there are things that we lost with other gods and another scene with the fates that would have been fun, we think. But, um, but yeah, And if I may add, just quickly, because we're talking about this and, and you brought it up, and Charlie mentioned the electric scene, as you know, you know you have a good scene when it does two, three, four, you know, a bunch of things. And the thing that he's talking about, it was a, it was an, it was an action scene, but it showed how smart she was. It showed how brave she was. It showed how much she cared for her men. It did like three things and it kept her, you know, in the way we introduced her as, as this badass. And it, it kind of kept that thread going. And that one we lost, that one hurt, and then there was a one where we revealed her backstory. Cause again, all right, she can do all these cool things. Um, you know, uh, from an action standpoint, but at the end of the day, 
it's all about the character and delving into who they are and, and what motivates them. And, and we had that scene, and that scene also was interesting because it, it, it gave her, it gave us insight into the character and, and also the characters that were with her. For Heron, he gained insight into her, and there was that, her backstory actually was something that he could relate to. So it, it worked in that level too. But as Charlie said, you know, we're, we're very grateful for, for what we were, um, for the budget that we were given and for what we were allowed to do. It's just that we are a little crazy <laughs> and maybe we just, um, brought in too many characters. But those, those were the ones that got left on the cutting room floor that were, um, they were just kind of tough to stomach. <laughs> And the one, the one last thing I'll say, the, the stuff that Ross is referring to for Alexia in 107, mm-hmm. what we did, and was very smart of Sean, is that we animated uh, 108 before 107, mm-hmm. because Sean was like, we might just kill our animators, and they might be spent, <laughs> and that's the big battle, and we're going to need them to, to still, you know, have the, the energy in the tanks to really tackle that. So we actually did 108, and then 107 was our last episode, and there was some stuff with Alexia there's two scenes that Bloss is referring to that we would have loved to kept in. But at that point, like, it was like the, the tanks were empty. We had to just, like, kind of, like, say, okay, like, God willing, we yeah. get a second season and we'll just, yeah, tap out and hopefully we can get it in, in future, you know, seasons if we're, we're lucky enough to get them. Well, I got to say, even in, in scenes like with uh, Alexia and her team kind of walking through the, the Deadlands, even those sort of uh, just kind of one-on-one scenes, maybe not a lot of action happening necessarily in the moment, but having to having to walk through there and not look back and the the different things that pop up for each individual character, that wasn't you know huge on the action front, but it said a lot when it came to character. So that's one of those those scenes that I kind of keep going back to when I think about the character. So that was really well done. Well, so that, that, that's a, that's a writer talking. That's absolutely spot on. <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> And then speaking of the animation, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it has the very familiar kind of action-packed sequences that Powerhouse has become known for uh, pretty much since the days of, of Castlevania. So how did Powerhouse first come on board? How did you guys get linked up with them? After we after we sold the show to Netflix, John Derdering was the executive who, who bought it. He arranged uh, for us to all sit and meet with different animation studios. And uh, I, I think I can speak for Ross that when we sat yeah. down with Powerhouse <laughs> mm-hmm. and we met Brad Graver, the yeah. CEO, and Mike Hughes, who's our producer, like, Brad is the, the perfect kind of combination of, of someone who genuinely cares about the art form and cares about storytelling, but he's also, like, super organized and <laughs> and uh, and just, like, you can tell right away that this guy is kind of the perfect amalgamation of creative and business, and, like, this guy will deliver, you know, the show. And we were just really impressed by him and Mike uh, Hughes, um, to be honest. But I would also, so, absolutely, go ahead, sorry, sorry. No, no, no go ahead. No, no, um, I'm sorry, bro, I, I cut you off, I didn't mean to do that. Um, and I know Charlie agrees with this, too. They had a big leg up, too, because everything Charlie just said was true, but we love Castlevania, too. Oh, yeah. So, like, you know, he was, oh, this is the production company that did this, you know, Castlevania, the show that we love. And, you know, and then when we met him, everything that Charlie just said, it was like, oh, wow. You know, uh, it was almost a no-brainer, even though the other animation studios that we met with they were top notch mm-hmm. they, they you know but it was when you combine those two things everything that charlie said and the fact that we both loved castlevania uh and this was the production company that produced that um again it was almost a no-brainer and i gotta say too if you uh, are either our listeners out there or, or you gentlemen haven't seen seis manos yet if you haven't watched seis manos uh powerhouse's mexican anime it's so good. I wish more people would watch it immediately. Um, yeah, I've talked to those guys a number of times about that, and I love geeking out over their uh, their their original IP there. Um, speaking of geeking out... I just out, ordered two Space Monos t-shirts this week. Uh, I saw Brad posted a link. I'm like, this is great. I'll get a Silencio shirt. That's, it's so much fun. If you are into genre mashups, and I, we know those guys, Dan and Al, who wrote that. Great guy. And I yeah. said, you know, like... And the little old Mexican lady, she's a lot like a little old Greek lady, you know. And like <laughs> we were just kind of talking about how, even though that's very specific to their culture, you know, right away you notice things and recognize things that are just very human. So I'm sorry, Dave, I didn't mean to jump in on. That. No, that's great because now I know there's right, a there's a new ready. shirt for me to buy. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Speaking of being an animation nerd, uh, this is kind of a side note, but I love that each of your episodes ends with sort of a behind the scenes peek. So it wasn't just a traditional credit sequence. You guys had you know, animatics or storyboards. There was character art sort of from the uh, the design phases. 
showing different designs of different characters that maybe we got to see in the final form, or maybe it was slightly different, especially with some of the Titans. I can't believe I haven't talked about the, the incredible monstrous designs of the Titans. Do you guys, do you guys nerd out over that stuff too? Or are you like me? Or are you just like big animation fans getting to see all that being made and shown off? We're big time nerds. Like you're going to get bigger nerds than us, believe me. And we're always thinking about stuff like that. But what was also so very important was to, to shine a light on all these talented artists and how hard they work. You know, everyone at, at Powerhouse in, in the Austin office, in the LA office, they work so hard. Our, you know, character design, Katie Silva did such an amazing job. So there were different iterations of Heron and, and it was, and we felt it would be interesting for the audience to see, oh, there was the version of Heron where he was a little chubby, and then we, we, there was one where he was a little more militaristic, and then we ended up with what we did. So there's, there's two things about that. There's one, it's interesting to see how we got to the final iteration of the character, but it's, it was also important to, to share uh, the, the hard work that a lot of these artists did that didn't make it into the show. Um, and again, we can't say enough good things about the, the incredibly talented artists we had working on, on the show from the character design to the, to the background artists. Um, you know, Jesse, um, Piles did a fantastic job. And Sean, you know, again, negotiating our director, just, um, leading the charge and, and really, paying attention to every little detail that came down to the character design that came down to the kills that came down to the emotional moments. And it's, you know, he led by example. And when you lead by example, that has an influence on people and then people raise their game. And Sean did that, you know, we work very hard, but Sean's probably the first person that we came across that works even harder than we do. So with regards to the, the credits, again, we just wanted to, shine a light on on the the very talented people that worked on the show and that's really what it came down to dave to be honest and the one thing is that like sean had said like, so what are we what are we going to do for end credits and then we started talking about the mandalorian and how it was nice to kind of give it and yeah they, you know i'd mentioned you know it's cool what the mandalorian does and then part of what we were just as we were talking i said sean to be honest like when you know katie or, or jesse send us you know, their work and what they're, you know, the designs they're working on. I said, it's like Christmas morning for us. It's like so exciting to see this amazing work. And we really want to try and find a way to kind of shine a light on them and thank them. Because also, too, you have hundreds of people working on this doing incredible work. And some people never even see their part of the product that helps make the final version. Right. And, and Sean says, oh, okay, you know what we can do? We can kind of do this montage type between, you know, animatics and character sheets. And and sometimes when those certain character sheets are up, the artist that worked on it, their name is up. And we mm -hmm. just thought it would be just a nice thank you to them because, you know, these people, when you work in animation, they work so hard. Um, and we just feel blessed that we have such an amazingly talented group of artists working on this. So this was our way of saying thank you. And what was kind of cool, to be honest, it was more about saying thank you. But I think people have really responded and they like yeah. seeing kind of behind the curtain and, and how, you know, and how, how the kind of, you know, sausage gets made. So it ended up being great uh, in both regards. It's funny, like sometimes when you try to do the right thing, sometimes it ends up being, you get this added benefit. Mm -hmm. And so that was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I talked to Brad and the guys uh, for Seis Manos and also Castlevania about that. I said, if they ever put together a behind the scenes art book or whatever with all that stuff that, you know, you'd have to freeze frame every single frame uh, of a Seis Manos episode to get any of it. Like I will buy that immediately. And the same goes for, for Blood of Zeus as well. Uh, I'm going to combo this next question. Since I, I haven't gotten to talk about the Titans yet, I'm going to combo this together. So talk to me a little bit about coming up with the the creatures, the designs for these massive Titans and their powers. And then also maybe talk about the challenge of that that massive episode uh, to end this first season that I think ran like something like 42 minutes uh, all told with credits and stuff included. So it was like a supersized episode, right? You talk about how that all came together? Yeah, the, the two things. The one thing I said though, just about at the time, like that is Sean our director using 20 years of experience in animation to squeeze every <laughs> minute and inch out of the show because like 
you know, we delivered 45 minutes more of animation than, than you know, we were budgeted for. Right. Uh, and now, too, part of it is when you splash back a lot, and so when you repeat animation, obviously, that doesn't cost anything. Sure. Um, but, you know, with, with the giant design, um, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, you just sit down and you have these conversations, um, and we were talking with Sean, because he said, what do these giants look like? And I said, well, listen, truthfully, you know, Ross and I were telling him, in mythology, they were called giants, but they were the same height as the gods mm-hmm. uh, in some iterations. Now, again, with Greek mythology, there's not one definitive version. It isn't like the Bible where they have an ecumenical council and they sit down and they say, this is the one version. In Greek mythology, you know, everyone attributes it to Homer. We don't even know if Homer was a real person or not. <laughs> um, you know, it was an oral tradition. There were, you know, so there's different versions of myths all throughout. But in, in a lot of versions the giants are described as being the same size as the gods. And part of it is we live in a world now where when you say giant, you think giant, mm-hmm. like someone really big. Um, but then we said, like, you know, what does that look like? Are they just really tall? In other versions, they're also described as being part serpentine, almost like, you know, um, Typhon. And so we kind of toyed initially, too, with this idea that maybe they're part serpentine, but that became very hard to animate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we ended up landing on is that the one thing that is clear in almost every iteration of Greek mythology that you read is that when the giants were born, they were veins of the Olympians, meaning that each one was an arch enemy for a specific Olympian. Mm-hmm. You know, Porphyrian was meant to kill Zeus. And, you know, they literally, like, you talk about the comic book analogies, like they were nemesis of this one. And so when we started talking about that idea, we said, well, if each one was brought into the world to kill a certain Olympian, maybe they have certain, you know, uh, skills or animalistic qualities that will help them take out that god. And so that's how we ended up kind of saying, like, well, each one is a specific animal that could fight this god. And then we just started playing this, like, chess game. Like, well, how would you kill Hermes? How would you? And so then we just started using animal references. And that's truthfully, you know, it's a long-winded explanation, I apologize, but that was the thought process and how we ended up. Someone, you know, said they were kind of very Lovecraft, and, you know, and, and I can see yeah. that now after the fact. But it was more kind of, okay, like, well, what nuggets or little clues from mythology can we use to try and make something that's cool for anime? You know, I, I do think it's, Sean said, like, I don't want to see a silhouette of just 12 things that all look the same. So that's, <laughs> we we got to do better than that. Right. And I agree with him, you know, and that's how directors think, and, and, and I'm glad he pushed us to, to just keep thinking and working and, and getting to where we got. I love the, the, the Bane component and I love how, you know, Charlie, um, you know, stated that and I think it's true. And I th- the only thing I would add, uh, was that some of the designs that we got back from Austin were just so cool. You know, the giants look so cool. We almost again reverse engineered. We looked at them and we're like, okay, they didn't have a specific power when they first gave them to us. Some of them, some of them did right from Jump Street. So then it was almost like, well, this is a really cool design. What, what can this giant's power be? And, and when we kind of, um, you know, arrived at some of the powers that way as well, as well as, okay, this is the bane to Zeus or this is the bane to Hermes or, or whomever. Sometimes it was like, oh, this is a really cool design. How can we, you know, endow this with a certain power that makes sense that could be really cool? Yeah, and you guys never have to apologize for giving me the the nerdy kind of in-depth background on character creation and mythology because I love that stuff. And honestly, that gives me a really good excuse to go back and watch that epic uh, battle again to see how that all kind of plays out. It really is fantastic. I mean, it's it's epic in scope and scale, and it's kind of the culmination of that whole story to that point. And Heron and his team, they have a part to play in it, but that's that's really where we as viewers get to see the gods kind of clash and the gods kind of like, show off their incredible powers. They've been kind of chilling, hanging out at Olympus for a while, but now they're called into action and it was fantastic. I mean, when Poseidon gets to like, just, just go nuts and just use like the full power of, uh, of the sea. I mean, that was, it's incredible to watch. It's super fun. Before I run out of time with you guys, actually, if, if you don't mind talking about maybe we've well, talked about the design of the, of the giants and, and their kind of uh, creation, but how monstrous of an ordeal was storyboarding that, that kind of final fight or, or writing up, you know, to get it to the storyboard artists, uh, to dance around that final fight. Like, how do you decide who gets this much screen time? Did you just have a point A and a a point B to end it? And you just let them kind of go wild in between. Yeah. It it was a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, bro. No, I I was going to say it it was, it was a challenge. Um, you know, we had, I, I would say 
big moments that we knew we had to um, build towards. Um, but getting to those moments, um, you know, again, uh, I, I would say I'm curious what Charlie, you know, would, would say. Um, Sean just did a great job of just making it all work because you also have so many characters, you have so many moving pieces. Um, and it, it, it's almost like a, a conductor with an orchestra. Um, you, you kind of need everyone to be playing the same song and you want it to culminate to this two big moments. And, you know, one's the Zeus moment and one is, I don't know if we're going to spoil or not. And then the climactic moment, um, at the end it was with Heron. Um, and so there was a lot of, initially it, it started off, believe it or not, the sequence was longer. Mm. And, and then what we decided to do, and, and Charlie was always a big proponent of this, and I totally agree with him. Um, we had to hone it in on Heron and, and, you know, his gang mm. having to find the, the cauldron because then he got lost. If you spend too much time with the, the battling, as cool as, as the, the, you know, the, the, the battle between the, the gods and 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 the, the giant, um, it, it lost some of its um, the the momentum, the kinetic kind of um, you know I would say the dramatic um, kineticness of again there's a mission that needs to be accomplished and here are the stakes. So we we kind of took some of those battles and, and we kind of said, okay, you know what? We don't need this one. We don't need that one. Let's hone in on, on Heron. Let's hone in on Zeus and then build to these moments and um, hopefully, ultimately, have it all build to the big climatic moment uh, with, with Heron there at the end. And I don't know if we're going to spoilers, uh, the Heron and the Seraphim uh, climatic moment. And the, the one thing, too, I, I think really helped is that we just had a lot of experience and then we just kept the lines of communication with Sean going constantly because, uh, you know, I think the final draft of that script was like 19 pages. Um, but obviously that's our longest episode. Right. And, and we always remember, you know, Tarzan, so he felt on mortals. He's like, you guys can get away with so much. You, you could write the line, the Russian army comes over the hill. And he goes, that's like 10 words. <laughs> but for me, that's 30 shots yeah. and, and <laughs> days of filming. And, and so, you know, we always kind of, even though live action, you know, and animation are different, we did know and understand that, like, what we write, we have to be very judicious. And, and what we did with Sean and what we kind of had written out and, and then, it, you know, pitched to him was that we're going to have this opening salvo of, you know, um, you know, the, they're going to unleash the catapults and Hermes is going to go down and make a dust storm and kind of blind the enemy. And then the chariots come down and then, you know, the, the giant counter. And we see what they do, and then Zeus comes with lightning bolts, and then you know, and then Poseidon's going to hit him with the wave, um, the catapult for Heron to get behind him. Yeah, yeah. But the one thing that we always told Sean is that if you watch the, and we love Lord of the Rings, we've loved the books since we were kids, and The Hobbit. But Peter Jackson on the DVDs, he talks about how they had these like, huge, massive scale, you know, battles. But he found that whenever they stayed away from the core characters mm -hmm. for too long, it just got boring, even if they had great footage. Um, and and we showed that clip to, to, to Sean, and we just said, like, that's why, like, we know we're going to have this cool stuff, and this is our chance to go full X-Men where we see, you know, gods against gods and, and gods against giants. But we have to make sure we're still threading the narrative through line as well. Um, and so that was always just the balance, kind of trying to keep those two things. Because there's even cool stuff that we boarded that, that was really cool that didn't make it mm -hmm. into the show. And, but it made, it didn't make it in because we didn't need it in the end, right. uh, interestingly enough. Um, you know, and so it's just interesting. And the one thing I will add is that Sean knew that we were bummed out that we, we had to lose the stuff we had with Dionysus in the earlier episode. And he was like, don't worry, I'll make it up. And you don't know how many people have said that they love the little moment where Dionysus like spits wine in the guy's face. And like that made him like stand out. And so Sean said, don't worry, don't worry, I'll, I'll get him in there, I'll get him in there. Uh, and true to his word, he found a way in this huge battle just to even make, you know, one little god stand right. out. And, uh, I think it speaks a lot to Sean and his creativity because that wasn't in the script. That was just something he, you know, he and his his uh, boarding team came up with. That's and, too funny. And I would say yeah. for the action, 
what always makes the action work, and 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 I totally, you know, and and thank God it resonated with Sean too to keep it on the core. Um, that we care about the characters. If, if we don't care about them, then you know the action would be, you know, the coolest set piece you've ever seen. But it, it won't work unless you're rooting for the characters exactly. and really rooting. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's the last little bit. As I start to wrap up with you guys, unfortunately, uh, a little bit more spoiler talk for this this last episode here. The very, very end, uh, and I'd been waiting for this pretty much the entire season. I'm like, there's one god that I haven't seen yet, and I haven't really talked about him much. We get a big reveal uh, of the major god who's been missing the whole time in Hades. So can you talk about building to that reveal, coming up with maybe this particular character design? Because I had no clue. The whole time I was like, I wonder what Hades is going to look like you know, finding the right voice. And then maybe is that a tease towards maybe more stories to come? <laughs> John, I'll let you take this one. <laughs> but, you, you know, Dave, uh, you know, listen, we, we can talk for hours about where we hope to take the story and, and what we hope to do. And, uh, and Hades is definitely a big part of it. And the great Fred Tattashore, who if oh, anyone, yeah. you know, really follows animation closely, he is so talented and one of the great joys uh, in making this show is just watching. He voices a bunch of demons. Mm. He voiced like four or five characters uh, in the show. Um, he's the voice of Hades. And, you know, he did, he's so good. Um, and again, for us, just to be clear, because, you know, people have mentioned this, and I know, you know, Netflix is only committed to this one season. Right. We hope that they'll order another one. Um, but to be clear, like, we don't see Hades as a, as a villain. You know, right. you know Greek mythology, he was actually one of the more kind of level-headed yeah. ones. And that moment at the end is meant to be more kind of like a Sisyphus or Prometheus-type ending where, you know, this eternal kind of punishment that you, you might have to face and the thing that you despise the most is the thing that you have to repeat over and over again. Um, but... Uh, there are clues in the first season, in shots and in moments that allude to more in the underworld and more with Hades. And that, you know, um, we, we have a, we have so many directions and things and stories we want to tell, uh, that will involve him. And so if, if we're lucky enough to get, you know, another season, he would, Hades will definitely be a player in it. But not, I think, the way people expect, uh, expect him. Or maybe, not the Disney version where it's like he's the bad guy because he's from the underworld. Sure. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with Disney, but, you know, I'm just talking about the old Hercules uh, animated movie right. where, like, he's the villain. But it's not, he won't be characterized like that. No, that's interesting, too. And I loved, again, we talked about the, the credits earlier. I love seeing the different kind of, like, iterations of Hades and the, the different earrings and the tattoos and seeing that kind of come together. And I personally would love to see more. Uh, hopefully we get to see uh, at least the second season, whether it's, your original kind of anthology idea, or we get to continue adventures with Heron and company. But since I kind of have to let you guys go, uh, as we wait for a hopeful second season, what's up next for the both of you? What else is keeping you busy these days? We're uh, working on uh, an MGM pilot. Um, so we're, we're busy with that. And uh, we have a couple other different projects. We have a couple features at different, um, at different stages of solicitation uh where we have some producers attached and um you know uh it's just interesting with regards to where we're at in the business we, you know I, I still feel that we don't know what the new normal is mm. um and i think that's being figured out so you know there, there, there has to be some clarity there um and you know, to be honest, we're, we're hoping and praying that, that we do get that, that season two, because as Charlie mentioned, we have so many characters that we want to explore, so many stories that we want to tell. Um, we love playing in this sandbox and, um, we're nerds. We're, we're always thinking about, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Wouldn't it be cool with that? And we found another nerd in, in Sean. So now there's three of us and we're always kind of batting ideas back and forth. Um, but yeah, that's what, what would you say, bro? No, I mean, uh, you know, as a, Dave, I mentioned, like, you know, we have three future projects in varying degrees of, of, um, development, but, you know, all of that's kind of on pause right now, right. to be perfectly honest. And we're just really uh, grateful for this pilot that we're writing for MGM. It's this really cool mythology about fallen angels, mm-hmm. um, that we're really excited about, but that's present day. And then, uh, we have to, we have, you know, one more step on that that we have to do, but that's really come together well. 
And uh, and then also we have this idea for a Medusa story that we just think is gold. And uh, we just, you know, when we finish this other script, we're just going to start writing it. Um, you know, there's some ideas we, you know, you, you believe you pitch and some ideas you think, you, you know, you should just write. And this one, um, you know, we've been doing this profession for 15 years and I think it's one of the best ideas we've ever had. And, uh, and we just want to write it because when you write it, then you can just tell the version you want it to tell. Um, yeah. At least initially, you know, it's always a collaborative process and there's notes and there's, you know, but if you pitch it, then you have to, you know, everyone then has to kind of be geared towards a, a target. Whereas if you just write it, it can just be what you hoped it to be, you know, and, uh, and we really think it can be, it, we really think it can be special. So, uh, it, we're going to finish that. Then hopefully write Medusa or hopefully, you know, get a season two order. Um, and so for the meantime, you know, it's just that and family and, and playing Hades on, on, uh, <laughs> I was gonna on, ask, uh yeah. <laughs> on our Nintendo Switch, Perfect. which is an amazing game, by the way. Um, everyone should check it out. Been, yeah. yeah. And it's been an interesting experience because one thing too, we'll add the first script we ever sold, um, we sold it to Universal. Now it was, picked up and turn around at and it's at Netflix and you know hopefully that's going to forge ahead too that's a heist um, movie um, but working in the longer format in TV and working in animation one of the things that's been incredibly gratifying is that we're involved through the whole creative mm-hmm. process and and for better or for worse we got to tell the story we wanted to tell um, you know we weren't rewritten as we were say on Immortals and say how we were on Death Note and, and that was very gratifying again for better or for worse we were able to tell the story that we wanted to tell and uh, it was it was just fun to again play in that sandbox and as, as Charlie said um, we would just love to to create you know um, that Medusa show and God willing get a season two yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, I'll, we'll do our best here <laughs> to get people uh, watching it, talking about it. You know, uh, best of luck with all the projects you guys currently have going. Um, best of luck with a season two order. I, I hope uh, we get to see it as sort of a holiday surprise here at the end of the year. And just, just best of luck in general in uh, the rest of 2020 and beyond. Thank you so much again for your time. Thank you, Mike. We really appreciate it.